Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there, Matt, how are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Another busy week. That's what you're always going to say. Yeah, I think it's important because I said, ah, oh, didn't do much this week actually. No, 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 that would surprise me if you ever said that, let me tell you. Well, hey, listen, wasn't it wonderful during the week to uh, hear about Molly Croft? Now, Molly Croft is uh, one of our local residents here. She's only 16 years of age. Now, here's the little thing about her. During the week on Thursday, she actually went down to, uh, I've got to get this right, make sure I've got the right venue here. So it's the... Sydney Aware Super Theatre at the ICC, which is right down there in Darling Harbour. Now, this is a major event she spoke at, which had around about 10,000 people there. So a lot of them are students and kids from around, not just Sydney and New South Wales, around Australia attend this event. Along as, with her, were all these international speakers who came to speak. Molly spoke for around about 15 minutes there at this event, in front of all these people, had about 60,000 people sort of tuning in online as well. So here is one of Dubbo's finest young ladies up there giving her level best, telling her wonderful story of finding a rainbow in every single day. It was an incredible, absolutely incredible experience, I think, to watch as well. Yeah, and that's fantastic. I think Molly is a great ambassador for Dubbo. Mm. Actually, our Rotary Club, the Rotary Club of Dubbo South, had a little bit to do with Molly over the years, and Molly's come along and spoken to our Rotary Club not quite the same number of people yeah, in the Rotary yeah, Club, yeah, yeah. but I've always been very impressed with what Molly's done, and congratulations to her, because that is a big thing to stand there in front of that many people, and some of the other people on the program, yeah, people like Nico Hines, yeah, League play, well, and Nico Tim followed her straight afterwards. Well, so, there you go, yeah, and you had Tim Maddock there as well, so yes. some pretty big names, so obviously a bit nerve-wracking, but I'm sure, knowing Molly, she would have handled all that, and people would have just thought she was absolutely natural. She might have been nervous behind yes. the scenes, but I'm sure she would have presented... Very well. I haven't actually seen it, but you can still tune in online and look at that. They've got all those presentations still available online. Yeah, from that stand tall actually, that's right. You can catch them up on the Stand Tall website. So if you go to the Stand Tall website, you can actually organise a link to get that sorted out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing as well that happened there during the week for Molly is if you go down there to the bigger A-Course Stadium, I'm assuming it's still called that, but the huge big stadium down there at Homebush, you go along there and there is this massive mural there now. It's been painted of Molly. Wow. It is, I haven't seen that. No, I, I can't wait to go and see it. I even saw some photos of it last night. Absolutely amazing. So again, it's just an incredible experience for Molly and the family, but also as a very, very proud uh, Debobian, let's call ourselves one of those sort of things. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to see her doing so well. Yeah, congratulations, Molly. So I'm, I'm actually keen to see that. That I wasn't aware of that particular mural there, but I'm, I'm very keen to see that now. So look, congratulations to Molly, because I think... Her heart is absolutely the right place. She's got a great attitude yes. about everything she does, yes. great attitude about life, and I think really makes a difference. So from a, a Dubbo ambassador perspective, I think she absolutely does a fantastic yes. job, and a family as well. Absolutely. Well, well done to Molly and well done to the family. Great job. Now, on to today's uh, podcast here, Matt. Let's start off with, in regards to, uh, during the week you met with uh, Minister Penny Sharp. Now, she's the actual Minister for the Climate Change, Energy, Environment and Heritage. Another one of those wonderful, great long titles there behind the name. So tell me about it, Matt. What happened uh, in regards to your meeting here with uh, this minister? Yeah, well, Penny's another one of those ministers that's got a number of portfolios. So you mentioned there, those four portfolios. They're all separate portfolios. Climate change and energy and environment mm. and heritage are all four separate portfolios. Man. I was meeting with her mainly around the energy and climate change to a certain extent. But the meeting was all about the renewable energy zone we have here in our region, which we have talked about a little bit. And it is... 
it's something we do talk about a bit, but it is exciting, and the potential that we've got with this res as part of Dubbo is absolutely fantastic. But mm. Penny was keen to hear from people out here in the region to see how we thought about this particular res. Mm. And so in the room we had Energy Co representatives. Energy Co are responsible for building the new transmission lines that will be part of the res. Also had the Warren Bungleshire Council Mayor, had our CEO, and essentially really just a chance to talk about the opportunities there. So Mm. it was the first time I've met Penny, which was fantastic. She seems pretty sharp on the ball. Well, the, the challenge for Penny, as she said at the meeting, was that she wasn't the shadow minister mm. for the same portfolio. So oh, she's okay. got to get up to speed. So she actually mentioned 75 days in. So, right, yes, So yes. just a, a random specific yeah. so number. So we'll cut a little bit of slack at this stage. That's right. Yeah. But she, she was pretty keen to find out what was going on and how she can help progress all of this. Now, obviously, there are lots of things happening at a departmental level. Mm. She's got to get up to speed with that. But they've paused ever so slightly just to say, let's see that it's going in the right direction. She's pretty convinced mm-hmm. it is, and it's, it's all happening, so that's all fine. One of the things that she was keen to hear about was how do we make sure the communities that are a part of the res benefit financially, mm. but also the challenges with housing, for example. Yes. How do we house all these Fair people? Fair questions, good questions. That's right, the challenges with getting staff. So there are challenges, there's no doubt about it. It's not all going to be wonderful and everyone smiles and says this mm. is the, the greatest thing ever. There'll be challenges that we'll have to meet together as a community, council, state government, everyone will have to meet these challenges. But I believe it's much better to have the the challenge of where we house all these people, the Mm. challenge of how do we make sure we get enough money out of these projects Mm. rather than, oh, no, we've got no one coming and we've got no potential to get extra income Mm. for the community. Is she open to these ideas, do you think? Is she open to sort of seeing the fact that these are the genuine concerns we have out here in our community? I think she was very open, very switched on, aware of some of the issues, but want to hear about more of them. Mm. Also keen to talk about the REAC, the Renewables Education and Activities Centre. Oh, this is, this is a little pet idea, I guess. <laughs> We've talked about this before. Yes. We have. And so did I you did, like the idea? Well, again, I don't know that Penny was giving so much of her opinion about things. Penny was really there to listen, mm. to absorb. So I don't know that I said, hey, Penny, what about the REAC? And she jumped up and... Said, you beauty, here's, and here's the check. Let's get this thing started. <laughs> exactly right. But... Again, it's another opportunity to talk about it, mm. another opportunity for someone to hear about it, but I still think the greatest opportunity we have with the REAC is around the industry training. So Light Source BP is talking about building an industry training centre because you'll have all these people mm. that need to be trained to do various things in construction and operation. Mm. So if you've got an industry training centre, well, it makes sense to have some sort of public education mm. centre and, and maybe yeah. some sort of activity centre because part of the industry training, they're talking about doing a working with heights model, if I have a mini wind turbine, so they'll train people on how to work with heights. Mm. Oh, well, you could also have a viewing platform absolutely. at height. So whatever it might you be. You can see the two working together. I can, yeah, absolutely yeah, right. Yeah. So it was a great opportunity to meet with Penny. I sent her some further information after that about the REAC, for example. Right. But it's the first of many meetings I'm sure we'll have over the next or many years to come. Mm. There was some discussion in the media about, oh, no, it's all been delayed now. It was going to go ahead in 2025. It's now not going to be till 2027. And so the media asked me, have you met with the minister about this yet? I don't actually think it's that big an issue about the fact that it's not all going to be going ahead in 2025. Keep in mind that you've already got wind farm at Bedengra. You've already got a solar farm, a 200 megawatt solar farm, yes. and a 400 megawatt solar farm being built at yep. Bedengra. All of these projects are renewable energy projects. And they're already going, aren't they? 
That's right, but they're not technically part of the res. Mm -hmm. The res only applies to projects that connect to the new transmission power lines that EnergyCo is building. Okay, I didn't realise that. So, and it's being a bit pedantic, I don't care whether they're connecting the new ones or they're existing, Mm. there's still renewable energy projects there, which is great. The one advantage of connecting to the new transmission lines is that EnergyCo will take a small amount of payment, Mm. and there are numbers being thrown around at the moment, $1,700 and $600 for different parts of that per megawatt, for example, but forget about the exact numbers, there'll be a payment that those generators will pay to EnergyCo as part of that. Now, that's where the community has great access to get some of that money back into the community Mm. as well. Mm. So there is a slight advantage to the projects, from our perspective, to the projects that will connect to the res, but having these projects starting already, so if it's 2025 or 2027, Mm. it's not the end of the world. Things are happening already. Construction will start. There are planning processes that are happening. People are already in the area. They're employed. They're eating at cafes. They're staying at Mm. motels. So things are happening. And to be fair, I don't know that you would have even been able to get the accommodation right by the year 2025. Mm. So That's right. There's a lot of infrastructure still to put into all that to actually yeah, get that going. That's right. So having the slight delay mm. is not the end of the world. So yes, a good I did, thing. Yeah. Well, it might be a good thing. I did talk to Penny about that, but I wasn't saying, oh, no, this is terrible. Fix the problem now. Mm. It, it is what it is. Mm. Let it flow through. Just make sure we're there to catch all the benefits. Exactly right. And like in the long run, we're talking about, maybe you're saying here last week or the week before in regards to this area is going to eventually surface from the point of view of energy 45% of the state, isn't it? Is that right? The initial size of the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone Mm. is to be a three gigawatt renewable energy zone. Mm. And that's not the largest but it's certainly where the most advanced. So this is the, the first one. At three gigawatts, that will provide the power that will power 47% of the households in the state, wow. which is about 10% of the overall power we need for the state. Yeah. But already there have been some discussions, and I did actually ask the minister and some of the energy representatives if there's anything official. Nothing official yet, mm. but there's some unofficial discussions that because things are going quite well in this res, and because you've got a council like Dubbo Regional Council mm. that's very keen to seize these opportunities to make it easy for them to deal with us, mm. then they might increase the size of this res to maybe five gigawatts, for example. Wow. So you're 47%. You're starting to get up close to 100% mm. of the households in the state, which, again, pretty exciting yeah. for us to look out there and go, wow, look at that. That's all that power we're providing that. Again... We want something back in return to. Correct. That's my absolute objective, to make sure Wellington gets benefits, financial benefits, out of the res being here as part mm. of Wellington. I was here, Matt, that uh, during the leading week you attended the Local Roads Congress at Parliament House in Sydney. Now then, talk us through in regards to uh, this Congress, first of all, um, and uh, what the actual, who was there and, and what actually happened from the meeting. So the, the Roads Congress is really an opportunity to discuss roads, surprisingly mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, there you go. And Funny talk that. about how we can improve the outcome for the community okay. with how we do roads and funding streams and construction, a whole range of things. Mm. So normally at a congress like this, you'll get a bit of a mixture. You'll get some of the political side. So we had two of the ministers there, John Graham and Jenny Acheson were both there. And then you had some shadow ministers, Natalie Ward and Sam Faraway were there. So you had some political discussions and there was some individual presentations and then a panel with the the four politicians there. Then we also had some technical experts to talk about 
construction and funding streams and just big picture long term. So there were five technical experts, they gave presentations there and they also talked so about... So was it just you that went down or other members of council went down with you for this? Or? Uh, so this was just me from the regional yep. council. Yep. But again, councils are probably 100 people in the room, sure. so councils from across the state, yep. a combination of councillors and council staff, a whole range of, of people involved in, in roads and really just to get an idea of where we're going with roads. Obviously, mm. roads is the number one topic people talk about still. Yeah. But really talking about how we can make our roads more sustainable, how we can invest in the roads in a sustainable way. In fact, that was the theme, sustainable investment. Can I ask the most obvious question? What does that actually mean? Sustainable <laughs> roads. Well, sustainable investment. Sustainable investment in roads. Okay, so what? How, how does that work? And I think part of the process there, and when you have a theme, obviously... That doesn't mean the whole conference is going to be about that or the whole Congress is going to be about mm. that, but it gives you an idea of some of the discussion points. And I think the, the real message I got out of that was that we need to make sure when we build infrastructure or repair infrastructure or rebuild it, we need to make sure we're doing it in a way that's best for the long term, even though that might be dearer in the short term, we want it to be more affordable in the long term. So when we're repairing roads that have been damaged, we can just do a, a quick fix on them and that'll get us by for a couple of years. Oh, good, that's mm. got that off the books there. People will be happy with that. But in a couple of years' time, oh, we're doing that at repair again. Mm. So are we better off putting more money into fewer roads in the short term to then say we can forget about that road for 40 years now? That's going to be done and it's done right and let's mm. make sure it's done to a level. It's only going to change the approach within council if that's the case, though, isn't it? Like, Because uh, the residents naturally would probably be expecting... Repairs be done pretty quickly, I'd, I'd imagine, even if it's simply filling potholes or whatever, you know. Like, there's a sense that normally residents would want things done fast. And so, as much as possible. And, and as much as possible, absolutely. That's so, the big thing. People want as many bits and pieces done as possible. So don't do those roads properly. Who mm. cares if you've got to go back in five years' time and fix it? At the moment, do these five roads rather than yeah. doing three roads and doing them better long term. This is really frustrating me right now, and I need it fixed now. And that, yeah. So that's the big issue. How do you get that? How do you get governments, local governments, state governments, federal governments convinced about doing these things in a better way mm. long term, even though it might not be maybe as popular a way to do it. Mm. So that was part of the discussion. Okay. The other part of the discussion, which I actually talked to some of the panellists about and, and asked some questions about, in terms of the different traffic we might have and electric vehicles was one of those questions mm. because electric vehicles are heavier. Right. So they might put more pressure on our roads uh-huh. with heavier vehicles. Okay. Yeah. The other part of it is that, and it's not just electric vehicles, but it seems to be, you've got self-driving vehicles. Self-driving vehicles, a few different ways that they actually work ahead of drive, but right. one of the main ways is they're relying on a well-formed road and lines on the side of the road to see, as in inverted commas, see, right, yes, car, yes, see yes. where it can drive, and even just the way the road's built. So I find with self-driving cars, if you've got good line markings, and the road is slowly curving, not sharp turns, mm. but slowly tur- or slow mm. turns or slow curves, then it seems to work really well. When you've got a road that mm. doesn't have good line markings on the sides, doesn't have really clear white line markings, in other words, they might be a bit worn out, mm. or the turns are a bit sharp out on the highway, the self-driving doesn't like all that as much. How so, did the forum react to that? Uh, silence. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, is this futurist here in, the, in our crowd? Sit they, down, sit down. They, they didn't. They hadn't really considered both of those things. Yeah, okay. The heavier vehicles are certainly one, and I suppose that goes to the the betterment of roads. How do you mm. build roads better? Mm. Heavier vehicles is kind of taken care of, 
by the fact that you're building these roads to be a bit thicker, a bit stronger, mm. more material in them. So they'll probably handle those heavier vehicles. The line marking, sure, that's mm. great. We should have that anyway, but maybe more or higher priority has mm. to be put towards that as we move forward 10 years down the track. So tell me, was there any talk about uh, changing the nature of building roads? Because, you know, we've discussed this as well in the past. If we're talking about sustainable nature of roads and sustainable nature of the funding of roads and sustainable nature of how we're going to construct these roads, what about the actual construction? Are we, is there any changes of that happening? There wasn't the revolution that I'd like to see. Mm. It was evolution. Okay. But I'd love someone to come along and say they've got Bessie, the greatest yes. road-making machine in the world on the yeah. Cars cartoon, but no-one's got Bessie. Mm. It's still the same construction methods, there may be tweaking things a little bit, changing a little bit, but there wasn't the big revolution. So, mm. no, this wasn't the Congress that we all went... Oh, it wasn't that big light bulb moment no, when we go, right. new beauty, that's we, exactly what we're looking for. We can just cut 90% of the cost out of building roads. They're still expensive, mm. they still take time, yes. and they're still very manual, unfortunately. The other part is in relation to roads funding. There's a couple of issues you've got with roads funding. Many people still think that the excise they pay for their fuel, for their diesel or petrol, mm. they think that goes straight to roads. Doesn't it? It's been no. It's been oh. 1959. Really? Since there was a direct link between fuel excise going into a roads budget. What? Our fuel excise. No, our fuel. Most people don't. Our fuel excise now mm. goes into consolidated revenue. Right. Goes with the government. General funds. General fund. Mm. Now money comes out of general funds to do road repairs, but. The, the amount we pay in our fuel excise is dramatically more than is spent on the roads across mm. the nation, whereas, yeah, again, yeah. it used to be directly linked up until 1959. Yeah, right. So think about all that for a moment, and then think about the fact that you've got cars that are now more fuel efficient. Mm. We've got hybrid vehicles mm. that use less fuel. How does that work? There's, like, a, there's a real focus yeah. on using less fuel, and then you've got electric vehicles that use no fuel. Yeah. So the amount of money the government's collecting and out of... your excise duty from an EV. Well, a, I'll come to that in a moment. Okay. There might be a way to do that. But right. all of this fuel excise money is slowly diminishing, even mm. though the population is growing and the mm. need for the government to have more money. So maybe there might be a change, and this wasn't part of the discussion on the day, but right. you might say we just need to change the GST, get rid of the fuel excise because it's not working as it's diminishing, mm. and we just have a, a larger GST. Mm. But if consumers are using up the roads maybe the ones who are using up the roads the most are the ones that should be paying for the roads the most. The fuel excise kind of does that, mm. but it, again, depends how fuel efficient your car is. Is there a way of doing that? Like, can we do that as a way of monitoring to sort of see who actually is using the roads more? And one of the ways that certainly some states have already talked about or mm. are in the process of introducing has been a per kilometre tax. And this is one of okay. the things that, in particular with EVs, that might be the way that we have that charged in the future. Now, sure, you might pay for your electricity, you might pay GST on your electricity, mm. But a fuel excise tax that was linked to your kilometre. So each year when you like a registration or something. That's right. You register your car. Okay. What's your odometer reading, sir? Oh, it's 25,000 kilometres, right? We'll get charged two cents per kilometre, for example, on that, mm. and you pay that when you register your car. So mm. that might be another way of going about it. But all of these things, the mm. great part about a Congress like this is you've got lots of people in the room, lots of questions coming through, people running it, talking about it, discussing it, and then. As it goes down the track, you'll get these mm -hmm. ideas crystallised somewhat and away you go. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, interesting day and yeah. lots of good discussions. Probably, well, there's a six-page communique that comes out of that, which then gets sent through to both state and federal government to say, here are topics of discussion on this day, here are some things on there. Right. That communique is a public document if anyone wants to go and read that six-page oh. communique that, yeah. to list 
all the available things. Available on the council website, is it? Or? Not on the council website, but if you went to search for Local Roads Congress, you'd find that communique. Okay. Uh, during the week, the 2023 Resources, Energy and Industry Innovation Forum was held here in Dubbo. Another one of these uh, great little conferences held here in Dubbo. And it sounds like you attended it. How did it all go? I didn't go to the whole thing. Unfortunately, mm. I just didn't have the time to commit to go yep. to the whole thing. I did go to the welcome function and, surprisingly enough, welcome people to there Dubbo at days. the welcome function. <laughs> but a couple of points here. One is that you're right. We have regular conferences mm. in Dubbo. Great for our economy. Great for motels. Great for hospitality. Fantastic. And we have lots of those happening yeah. everywhere. It's almost bread and butter for Dubbo. Yeah. Fantastic. This one, though, in particular, was really looking at how do we as a community mm. take advantage of the renewable energy zone that we talked about before. Is that why these guys came here? Because they've identified Dubbo as obviously a real hotspot right now in regards to this. This was organised by RDA Arana right. and also organised by the Mining and Energy Related Council Group. Mm. So combined between those two, they organised it. So they put it on here in Dubbo for the obvious reason that you've got things happening in Dubbo. Mm. But there were 64 different speakers at this event. Wow, that's the, a serious uh, forum, isn't it? Like it, a major it conference. Uh, and one of the things that was a real focus was what other industries can we grow? Mm. Now, I have different ideas about different mm. things we can do to take advantage of the res. But I can't even dream up all the different things that mm. we'll see here in five years' time, in ten years' time. Mm. And just to give you a really simple example, there's often talk about hydrogen as a fuel source for vehicles, in particular mm. long-range vehicles. Mm. So if you're driving a truck across the Nullarbor, mm. it's not that convenient to charge up that truck as mm. you go. Using hydrogen, you can refuel hydrogen mm. about the same way you this can refuel stuff, petrol. Twiggy Forrester talks a lot about this, doesn't he? This is a big project, isn't it? Lots of people yeah. are talking about mm. what you might do. And yes, Andrew is one of those people. But mm. there will be need for hydrogen, maybe with aeroplanes, maybe with ships, maybe with trucks, maybe even with cars. But I think cars will probably go down more the EV path. Mm. And that's all well and good. But to produce hydrogen, you can take water, H2O, you can get hydrogen out of water, but it requires power. Mm. If you use coal-fired power to produce that, you're not really mm. getting that cleaner fuel. Yep. So anyone that's talking about producing hydrogen at scale talks about e-hydrogen. Let's make sure we produce that hydrogen via power that's being produced by renewables. So mm. then we can say, hand on our heart, this hydrogen mm. is good for the environment. It makes sense to potentially do that. In a region like this where it's being set up for that. When you've got lots of renewable power. There it is. That's right. So yeah. there's one industry that seems pretty obvious to me yep. that there will be someone, maybe more than one company, producing hydrogen here mm. from the fact that we've got this renewable energy mm. zone. But that was one. Mm. 64 different speakers yeah. talking about a whole range of different wow. things. So that was pretty interesting and I think exciting to see the potential. That's mm. fantastic. The other thing that I did talk about was... They asked me to do a welcome and, and just talk about Council's net zero strategy. So I did that. But I gave a little story or told a little story, which I'll, I'll retell now, a, a brief version of that. Mm. And I told a story about many years ago when we were at the beach one time and the kids were there at the beach. And I was explaining to them about the tides. Tides come in, tides come out, and it's all driven by the moon and the sun. Mm. So the moon is responsible for about two-thirds of our tides and the sun about one-third of our tides and all about the gravitational force and, and the kids were intrigued by this because obviously the sun is much bigger yes. than the moon. Why is the sun only a third and the moon two-thirds? And then I got into explaining about the 
inverse square law of gravitational forces. For five, yeah, five, six, seven-year-olds right now sitting there involved in this discussion. I'm sure they would have been writing to the inverse discussions of that. That's, That's right. Awesome. The, the, kids, the kids were two and four at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but I explained all this to them, and, and so they were quite fascinated by yeah. all this, and that yeah, was great. Yeah. And then they said, well, how do we stop the tides coming? Because we want to build some sandcastles. Yeah, there, there you go. Dad stopped the tide for me. That's right. And I kind of went, well, did you understand the bit I said about the moon and the sun? <laughs> I'm not I got sure. lost in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that I've got the power to stop the tide. So what the kids did was they built a little sand wall right. on the beach for them to then build their sandcastle in behind that. Yeah. And you can be pretty sure that a few hours later, that same wall <laughs> got taken away as the sun, <laughs> as the sun, as the tide slowly came in, yes. and that was the end of it. And I told that story, and you can see people in the audience thinking, "Has the guy lost it? <laughs> Does he understand he's meant to be welcoming people to Dubbo as part of this forum?" But the reason I told that story was that what I see with renewable energy, mm. and here we are in this renewable energy zone, mm. is something similar. Mm. Some people say, and they've said this to me, how do we stop these wind turbines being built? How do we stop these solar panels? How do we stop this whole renewable energy zone? And I've said to them, and I haven't told the story in, in that detail, but mm. I've said, you might as well stand at the edge of the ocean and put your hand up and stop the tide from coming yes. in. You've got more chance of doing that than you have of stopping renewable energy movement happening because... Coal-fired power is not going to keep happening. Coal mining is not going to keep happening. Yeah. We need some way to produce our power. It's happening. So you can either stand there and build your little sand castle yes. like my kids did yes. and then be surprised when it gets knocked over or work out a way to embrace it. How can you build your sand castle with some moats where the tide coming in is needed to fill the moats up, for example, <laughs> yes. but nice. work out a way that you can take advantage of it. So I think the people in the audience, who probably were the converted anyway, yes, yes. love the idea of the, of the story, love the... A little anecdote there about the kids and, and how you can try and stop things that are inevitable or you can embrace them. And I think that's really what we've got to do as a council, embrace this res and there are challenges. Embrace the res and overcome the challenges mm. rather than go, how do we stop it? Because yeah. it's not going to be stopped and then you've missed an opportunity. Uh, and that's, I think this is a once in a multi-generational opportunity absolutely, absolutely. to benefit our community. So how do we take advantage of that? Totally agree. Notice also during the week there were some council workshops held, um, and in particular it looks like uh, there's been the first exhibition here of the draft budget and operational plan. Let's start with that. So how's it all looking? Yeah, so it wasn't so much the exhibition. The exhibition period is finished now for the draft uh, okay, budget yes. and the operational plan, and we've obviously had submissions out there. Now, what's happened in the past, and this is going back to my previous time on council as well, typically you would get submissions that would come in and then councillors would get those submissions in the business papers, which mm. you only receive a few days before the council meeting, for us to then look at all of these submissions, 50, 80, whatever number of submissions yeah. in, consider those against the budget. You don't have a lot of time to really consider those against the budget and how might we mm. alter the budget to accommodate some of the submissions and the requests that mm. the community's had. So the staff this year have said, We'll give you those submissions earlier. We'll run a bit of a workshop, have a bit of a discussion about it, yep. and then they'll still be in your business papers, but at least you've had them early, mm. had the opportunity to look at those and consider those. So mm. you're right, that was the first topic. I won't go into detail in those submissions yet. They're not public yet. No, but certainly right. we had the chance to look at those, just run over them, and people have spent a lot of time. Is that right, yeah. There's some really detailed submissions, which yeah. I love. Yeah. There's some, some great ideas and that coming through. Lots of ideas, some of them great, some of them yes. would be, some of them are, are fantastic, but budget is, is going to mm. be the problem. For a lot of these ideas, one of the things that's always interesting is 
I don't often see a lot of submissions from people that say, can you put my rates down? I don't often see submissions from people say, can you spend less money? Most of the submissions, and this would be consistent, mm. most of the submissions about, can I get extra stuff? Can I get mm. extra things? Can mm. you do extra things? Which all cost money. So that's always a challenge. Mm. You look at the submissions and you say, oh, that's great. I love the idea. That'd be fantastic to do that. Yeah. But we need to pay for it. Well, the other thing is, too, is there a potential problem starting to emerge here, too, in regards to, and we talked about this, with, with some of the extra uh, costing now that state governments put on us, and we, we talked about this in regards to, uh, help me out here, the... the emergency services the Emergency levy? services levy, that's the one. Mm. Um, so that's obviously something now that's come in post-initial budget expectation. Are there anything, is there anything else coming up that could potentially affect where the budget could be? So there's two things. Right. We put this, the draft budget on display, ask for submissions. So here you go, we've got a budget that's set, and so if you take a dollar from this section and spend a dollar on that section, that all sounds fine. Mm. But the emergency services levy, which, as you remember, mm. was about a $616,000 hit to the bottom line. It so wasn't re- really planned for, was it, in the well, we, it inception of this? Unawares, we, we were not aware of that happening at all. Mm. We thought it would go along as it had done in previous years, but that was a bit of a surprise from the state government. And then the additional one is there have been some discussions with unions and local government New South Wales, and it appears that the award will go up by more than we estimated it would. So they're talking about potentially, and it's not ratified yet, but probably will go ahead, they're talking about a 4.5% increase. Now, we've got over $60 million in wages that we pay in council wages. We budgeted for approximately 2%, maybe 2.5%. Right. So 4.5% yep. adds another $1.2 million or thereabouts. And there's yeah. some so other. We're talking about $2 million potentially, isn't it? Well, know, based on where a, the difference could be. A bit more because you then have superannuation oh, yes, on of top of that. Yes. And then your workers' compensation is linked to mm-hmm. your wages. So it's mm-hmm. probably safe to say at least $2 million, maybe. Two and a half mm. million. We'll wait till we get the final figures. Mm. So, with all our other budgeting we did, on top of that, we've got to try and somehow find another two and a half million. Mm. And then we've got to look at the requests from the community to see mm. what other things they want. That was the idea of doing a workshop early for us to start to consider some of those things, look at those submissions, what can we change, how can we alter things. But again, there weren't submissions that said reduce our rates. Mm. It was all about spending mm. more money. How do we do that? And we've said that we're not asking for a special rate variation. It's the normal rate pegging amount. Yeah. Whether that continues on forever and a day, that we don't actually end up with a special rate variation. There's actually been a fair bit of talk in the media by a lot of councils around here, a lot of, uh, I've noticed in recent weeks, in regards to the rate pegging and how that is really starting to cause real problems for a lot of councils. It has for a number of years. It's been in place mm. for many decades. 77, I think, from mm. when it first started. So it's been around and it's been an issue for a long time. And people talk about financial sustainability. And I actually wrote my mayoral column on this during the week. Mm. And it's a term that's thrown around. When you talk about financial sustainability for a business, you often think about a a business going broke. We're not talking about council going broke. When we talk about financial sustainability, it's not about a council going broke. What it is, or sometimes it is, but it's not in the original council's case and not in the majority. That's right. What it's talking about is the community has an expectation of a certain level of services that will be delivered they pay their rates, other money comes into council, and they get things for that. Mm. When we then go and say, is council financially sustainable? It really means, with the money we've got coming in, can we keep delivering those services? If we can't keep delivering those services, then what it means is that 
it's still going to be okay. We're not going to go broke, mm. but it just means you're getting less. Yes. You keep paying your rates money, but yeah. what you're getting is less because you get other impositions, other financial impositions, yeah. for example, an emergency services levy, yeah. Well, we've got to get that money from somewhere. Oh, so it now become fixed costs, haven't they? Like they've become costs that you have to now pay. All of those costs we, mm. we have to now pay or have, mm. have always had to pay. So it might mean we mow fewer lawns. It might mm. mean that we don't look after the sporting fields to the same level. It mm. might mean that we don't provide other funds for other functions of mm. council at the same level. So it is complicated. Mm. Again, it doesn't mean we're going to go broke. It just means that what the community gets yes. for their dollar might reduce to a certain extent because of other financial constraints. So mm. it's complicated, but again, we've got councils there that are all focused on working through it to the best of our ability. Hey, met with uh, the Immigration Advice and Rights and Representatives. Now, I've never heard of this group. Is this um, it's a international group, national group? Uh, they are state-based. Is uh, Who's this organisation, Matt? Yeah, I'd never heard of them either, and they contacted me a few weeks ago and said that they'd be in Dubbo because another conference. We right, conferences this the is a, another conference that came here during the week. That's right, there was a two-day conference. It was the Dubbo Violence Prevention Collective Conference. Oh, okay, right. And so this particular group said, we're in Dubbo, can we come along and talk to you? I want to explain to you what we do. Mm. Well, sure thing, I'm happy to meet with anyone. Yep. I don't know anyone that I've ever refused a meeting with, so <laughs> That's happy lovely. to meet with anyone. So we had a couple of people come along from the Immigration Advice and Rights Centre, and they really want to explain a little bit about what they do, which I actually found quite fascinating. Mm. Where does council play a role in this? I'll get to that in a moment. But mm. for the first part of it is that you've got domestic violence as an issue. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And I don't claim to understand it. I don't claim to have any solutions for it. It's it's frustrating when I hear about it. Mm. But I, again, I, I really don't understand how, how people can be perpetrators of domestic violence. But obviously it happens. Mm. Also, and so this group talks about domestic violence, family violence, and sexual violence. Right. So all things that would be horrible to be in the middle of. Mm. And one of the things that I'd never considered, and this is where this group's involved, mm. is you've got people who immigrate to Australia. You've got immigrants here. Fantastic. I love when they decide that they want to come and live in Australia. Mm. The problem is that sometimes those immigrants might be in a domestic violence situation. And the problem for people that... If you've got an Australian couple, let's, let's call it for what it normally is. It's normally uh, domestic violence is often male, female. Mm. The female's the victim of the violence more often than not. Yep, you know, and that's, that's always right. the case. Yep, but no, I'm just saying the, the figures in general, show that. That's, that's right. right. And the challenge for a female in that scenario is they might want to leave the environment they're in, but they don't have the funds, they don't have the finances to go and rent somewhere else. And mm. there are programs in place to try and help people. They might have a family in place. So what do they do with their kids, for example? So there are situations like that. But one thing that I'd never considered was that if I've come here from another country and I'm a victim of domestic violence, I might be concerned that I'll be deported. And the perpetrator of that domestic violence may well make threats that if that you right? leave me... That's, that's, that's the line they'll use. That's, that's one of the lines they use. If you leave me, I'll report you hmm. and you'll be deported. Surely that's not right. You're correct. Legally, it's not yeah, right. Yes. But the perpetrators of domestic violence don't care about what's right This is part of the power play that's obviously implied in in the relationship. You've hit the nail on the head. So Mm. this particular group, which is only a small group, they've only got about 10 staff. So are they a private organisation or...? I assume that they actually get their funding from government. Okay. So I I, I don't know. I didn't talk to them in detail about their funding model. I was more, when they started telling me some of their stories, I was more 
fascinated and horrified to a certain mm. extent mm. about that process. So I must admit, I didn't, I failed mm. to ask them about yes, that. Right. But I did certainly find it fascinating mm. and also a bit scary and a bit disappointing that this sort of thing happened. So all the other things that I vaguely understand, and I don't claim to be an expert on domestic violence, here's another layer mm. that I'd never considered before. Yeah. And sometimes people come to this country because they might meet an Australian, so there might be someone from another country, and they're in a relationship, so the Aussie mm. feels safe in mm. this environment, but the person that's come from another country, mm. again, those threats could be used, or it might be a, a couple that comes from another country, mm. and it might be we only came in this country because we're a couple, we're only allowed here, so if you leave, etc., mm. etc. Et mm -hmm. So it is nice to have people out there doing that. Now, how does council get involved in this? So, so it's, was this conference, were there other groups apart from council uh, invited to attend this conference? Well, we weren't at this conference. Oh, so it wasn't actually Kansas a personal thing that invited This, this was okay. just, this group happened to be in Dubbo for this conference right. and said, can we come and meet with you? So they just came okay. on to meet, yep. to meet with yep. me. And, and I said, so how is council involved? How do you mm. want council involved? Mm. Why are you talking to me, basically? Yeah, <laughs> in yes, in a nice right. way. Yes. And really, it was no involvement from council. This okay. isn't a group that needs council involvement. It was really just about education and awareness, mm -hmm. so hence you and I are talking about it yeah, now. Yeah, a bit of awareness raising. Yes. That's right. And so they said sometimes you might come across someone that's involved in these situations. We do citizenship ceremonies, for example. I talk to people after mm. citizenship. I've mm. never had someone after citizenship say to me, by the way, can you help? I'm in a DV situation. Mm. But it's possible. So mm. really it was about just knowing that they exist. Mm. I didn't know they existed. I now know they exist. Mm. Even knowing those situations, I hadn't thought about those situations we talked about mm. with that power play. Mm. I'm now more aware of that. So in terms of that education and awareness, that's they're doing their job, I suppose, yeah, yeah. and knowing that the situation is out there and there are people to help. So anyone that's listening to this that is an immigrant and is in a situation where they find that they're in a DV situation, because yeah. sometimes people, what they told me was mm. from a cultural perspective or from a visa perspective, they often don't want to go and see the authorities like the police, mm. which is where you might turn to initially. Yeah. So having someone there... So, so if they're in that situation right now, they're listening right now, who would yep. they contact? Immigration Advice and Rights Centre, IARC. If you Google that, then you'll find that it's a community legal centre operating throughout the state mm. and free legal advice, free assistance, free education to women, specifically on visas, on temporary visas, <coughs> who are experiencing family, domestic or sexual violence. Mm. So go and contact that Absolutely. group if you're in that situation. Yes, most definitely. How about during the week here, Matt, too, that you were... It's an area we've talked about a fair bit, the, the stay of the roads up there on Sheridan Road, and you had a chance to catch up with the principals of... Uh, it's obviously the Christian School, the uh, St. John's College and St. John's Primary School. So you had a bit of a meeting there during the week, obviously gave them the opportunity to voice their concerns and maybe to sort of to discuss what the, the planning is in moving forward uh, with Sheridan Road and particularly in regards to the state of the disrepair of that road. Yeah, so all the educational institutions that are there, as you said, you've got the, the two St. John's, you've got the Christian School, and you've got the Skills Plus. Of course, that's there, right, yes. There as well. Yes. So all of those, obviously put some pressure on that area mm. around obviously drop off and pick up time, but also the opening of Boundary Road, as you know, was yes. fantastic, but then it exposed the frailties of the road between the schools and along Sheraton Road between the schools and Boundary Road. Yes. And so that's been an ongoing discussion and we've had several discussions there, but I thought it'd be a good opportunity for myself and the CEO and our staff to go along and just talk to 
all of those groups. So we had representatives there from all those organisational sort of educational institutions. And it was really just a discussion to give them a bit of the picture mm. long term and also to talk about some short term solutions and just a, a general conversation to see how things are progressing. So I think it was very worthwhile. Mm. We got a chance to talk to them about the big picture. We've talked about it before on the mm, podcast. The Blue Ridge Link Road, that's probably 18 months away, so maybe the end of next year. Yep. And there's no point doing long-term proper repairs to Sheraton Road until the Blue Ridge Link Road is done because mm. we want to take the heavy traffic off Sheraton Road. Mm. So that's maybe end of 24 before that's done. So the end of 25 is probably the time frame before Sheraton Road is done properly. Mm. Mm. Some short-term repairs we can do there as well. Yeah. But some other things came up, which, again, I think definitely worthwhile. It's good for them to have the understanding of all of that. Yes. But one of the issues that came up is that we've talked about the 16 cities bus program from Transport for New South Wales. Yes. They're putting additional bus stops in around the city. One of the bus stops they're putting in, mm. which no one in the room understood, mm. was right at the front of St John's Secondary School, an area that's commonly used for pick-up and mm. drop-off for students. Mm. That becomes a bus bay with the Transport for New South Wales plan. And we, we didn't understand that. You've got buses that drop off kids in the designated bus yep. bays now at the beginning of school and pick up kids at the end of school. Why do you need another bus bay there? Who's going to be catching the bus yep. at the front of St John's on a normal bus route? The people that are there, the teachers and students that are there, are going to be there at the beginning of school and end of school. During the day... I just can't see... Do they understand, too, New South Wales transport in regards to just how busy that area is and what the inconvenience would be, too, for um, people dropping off and picking up in that space? Like, it is pit street there, two times of the day, in the morning and the afternoon. It's absolute pit street. And when would people want to catch a bus? Absolutely. That's what we couldn't understand in the room. Mm -hmm. Why would people go there at 11 o'clock in the morning and randomly catch a bus? Yeah. I didn't understand. Anyway, so no one in the room really understood that. And so as a result of that, and again, people don't understand where council's involved in things, the groups in the room said, oh, well, can council just change that? And we said, well, no, we can't. Mm. We can certainly make representations to transport from South Wales, but more importantly, everyone in the room can do that. Yeah. One of the schools said they've actually already approached transport from South Wales about the bus base and got no response, literally no response. Yeah, right. Which I found unusual because I've seen residents send some correspondence to Transport New South Wales about those bus stops, mm. and they have got some correspondence back, and sometimes it's been quite a good outcome. Mm. So I was a bit surprised about that. So I did say, everyone, make sure any concerns you've got around that, send those off as well, yep. and Council, we can actually send them off as well to just say, it doesn't make sense, why mm. would we do that? Mm. So that was one issue. Just talked in general about some of the other issues. For example, the school car park that you, sorry, the student car park that you have, that you go past St. John's on the eastern side of Sheraton Road and there's the student car park there. Students coming out of there sometimes turn right and add to the congested traffic. Sometimes they turn left. And so we discussed the idea of a left turn only there. Would that work? Would that actually Mm. help take traffic away from there? Because again, you've got kids that are least experienced on the road with P-platers there and they're going into all of that other traffic that might be in the area. So I just think some interesting ideas mm. around that type of thing. It's good. There was no definite decision made on that. It was really, let's look at it first and see how many students do come and turn left and how many turn right, where are they going, just to get a bit more information and mm. data there. But there's no doubt about it. It's a problem area. We're aware of that. We can't wave a magic wand and fix it immediately. Mm. And we have got some money that we'll spend on repairs, but that was another question. Repairs between the school and Boundary Road, are needed. There's a yes. fairly bumpy section down there. It's not yep. a great road. But then there's also repairs of some ruts that have been formed in the road out the front of the schools. Mm. Do we spend the money at the front of the schools where more people are driving or down 
the section between the schools mm. and Boundary Road. Does where this get back to worse. the uh, sustainability question again? <laughs> I didn't actually roll out sustainable investment. Mm. What we need there it is, there it is. That's <laughs> it. But, but these are the things. Spend yes. the money in the best possible way where it's going to have the best impact or the most impact. Mm. But bottom line is it's good to talk to the users, Absolutely. talk That's to right. the people there and see how we can work together to get outcomes. also shows the fact too that, um, you know, have the opportunity to express your ideas, express your thoughts, and to see the fact that council will listen and to take these things on board and to, to put them in as part of all everyone's ideas in regards to moving forward with this. And I think one of the things that's really important here is that you get to the point where you have a better understanding. Yeah. We can't magically wave a wand and fix it all. There's no point fixing the road properly at Sherman Road because the heavy traffic that's going on there now is just going to destroy that further. So again, I think understanding is part of that. I've often said that my job as mayor, one of many jobs I've got, but one of my jobs as mayor is to make sure the community understands. We do this podcast so the community understands right. and hears what's going on. Yeah. I can't make everyone happy with every decision that I make. Mm. Council can't make everyone happy. But if you understand why decisions are made, you've got a better chance of actually accepting the decisions yes. rather than just going, well, that was a silly decision. I didn't understand why. Mm. Look, here, this is an uh, interesting idea came up from a standing committee uh, meeting that was held there on Thursday night. Mudgee Regional Rail Group Chair, uh, Mike Sweeney, gave a presentation to Council and one of the things that he uh, looked at was looking at doing an alternative train route from Dubbo to Mudgee to Sydney. Hmm. That's an interesting option. Is, is this something that's potentially achievable? It would be achievable, definitely. It takes money mm. and this is where... Is there money available? Not really. And mm. again, it's a state government issue, yep. but... Mike Sweeney really wants to... I've talked to Mike Sweeney about this issue before and he's very passionate about it, which is great. Mm. I love that. Mm. And one of the things that he really wants from councils is just to know that there's some support there. If a state government sees some support from a council, they know they've got more community support. Mm. And the concept is quite good in terms of having better public transport links. We've got a train now that comes out once a day from Sydney to Dubbo via Bathurst Orange and then goes back once a day. The idea of this would be opening up an additional freight and passenger link. Okay. And yep. again, passengers, one part of it, so that that train could come out from Sydney and also be going down to Sydney, but go via Mudgee. So you could choose which time of day you went mm. in both ways. So mm. you'd end up with two train services each day from Dubbo, mm. one going to Sydney via Orange Mathis, one yep. going to Sydney via Mudgee, and the same in reverse. So that would make sense. Mm. And then freight as well. And sometimes the way you get rail lines built is via freight mm. because you have freight savings there, and then the passenger part is just an added bonus. It's pretty hard often to justify a passenger train or justify spending a lot of money on rail links for a passenger train only. Mm. But one of the areas that certainly is of great interest to council is that we've got a lot of logging trucks that go through our local government area. Right. They don't start or finish in our local government area, but they use our roads. And Saxa Road down near Wellington... To oh, yes, we spoke about it before, yes. Yeah, links up from the Golden Highway across to the Mitchell Highway. <coughs> we know that Saxa Road has yeah. been damaged extensively by some of those logging trucks. Okay. But again, we don't really get a return, financial no, return for no, that. No, that's right. Which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. If you took those logs off the road and put them on rail, that would be a huge benefit to our roads, including mm. Saxa Road. The cost, what Mike talked about, and this is a presentation to council, what yep. Mike talked about was the cost of repairing and instating some rail links that are needed so to make this Is happen. there a current link that, between Dubbo and Mudgee? 
Not really. There are right. some links there, and some of those are not used anymore. And there's also some gaps there that would be needed to be set yeah. up. You're talking, in Mike's estimation, maybe $32 million. Okay. I think it'd probably be more than that. Yeah. But really, it's one of those things that Mike's driving this. He's talking to state government. He's mm. meeting with various ministers and okay. various members of parliament. So he's out there, yeah, out doing there. his little best, shaking it up. That's right. And really what he wanted to do with Dubbo was inform us and also have our support, which council generally, yes, happy yeah. to support you. We haven't got any money for it, but we're mm. happy to support you. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're with like you all idea. the way until you say yeah, sign yeah. a cheque. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But look, again, that's a good opportunity people have at our standing committee meetings yeah. to come along and talk about ideas that are relevant, even though we're not going to do it, it's still mm. relevant for the whole community. Yes. Notice also here at the uh, standing committee meeting that uh, there was a request made by one of the community radio stations here in town, DCFM, uh, to look at gaining a hundred thousand dollar interest-free loan over five years. Now, is this something that council would consider? Absolutely, consider. Mm-hmm. Council has given out a variety of interest-free loans. There's a report that listed a number of these that have given out a variety of interest-free loans to a variety of organisations around the community for a variety of purposes. So if there's a community group that has some need for some additional funds, it's often difficult for them to go and borrow the money from a bank Mm. because Mm. you want guarantors for that, you want typically a a for-profit company, not a not-for-profit company that's actually doing this work. So it's often hard. So coming along to see council, the interest isn't much. The Mm. overall cost to the community in terms of if council Mm. gives a an organisation interest-free money is usually not that much because you don't get much money, mm. you're not getting much of a return on that. That's right, yes. So that's one part of it. But again, you still want to be sure of it. Mm. And and I will declare uh, an interest here, and I did declare this at the council meeting, technically I've got a non-pecuniary, yes. less than significant interest in DCFM as yes. a community radio station because I do do a tech segment on DCFM. I have been doing that before I was mayor, so I, I've yeah. been doing it for a long period of time. Yeah. But again, you just want to make sure that people are thinking, oh, that's right. the mayor's giving money for this because he's got that mm, text email on there, mm. completely unrelated. But the discussion really centred around what happened in a range of scenarios there. Mm. So there was no recommendation made from the committee meetings. As mm. you know, you, you can't make a decision at a committee no, meeting, right, but committee. you make a recommendation. Yeah. But there was no recommendation made about yes or no for $100,000 interest Is there rate. a process that, uh, let's say DCFM in this case, has to go through to... Uh, put an application in? Like, what are some of the criteria they have to try to meet? Well, in this scenario, they just put a letter in and it went to a committee meeting. Okay. But the councillors said, well, we'd like to look at their finances. Can they actually repay it? Sure. The Fair letter question. that came said that, yes, they could repay that, but we'd like to see those finances. So councillors put a recommendation through that said, we want some additional information before we can make a decision one way or the other on this. We need to see their finances. Mm-hmm. We need to see other avenues that they've pursued to try and get some of the money that they need and we'd also like to see some information about their constitution to see what happens if they close the doors tomorrow for example mm, mm. how does council yep, get the money, money back yep. one of the things that council's done in previous interest-free loans it's often been for a building or extending a building or spending money on a building mm. that might be sitting on crown land mm. that council's a trustee for mm. so for example you might go and extend a building you get some money from council and then if that organisation goes broke tomorrow, well, council's got the mm, building because yep, it's on land yep. that we manage. In this scenario, it's not on land they, that we manage. And the money they needed is to increase their broadcasting range to put up a bigger tower, higher broadcast output. So that's not quite as easy to say, well, there's a building we could use. Mm. It's very specific proprietary equipment that's used mm. for radio stations. Mm. 
So additional information, I suppose. Yep. We'll go back and ask that from DCFM, and then it'll come to a council meeting, and then we'll make a decision based okay. on that. Notice through the week he went down also and saw the men's shed. It's a great operation. This is the operation set up there. It's been going out for many years in Victoria Park. Um, he went down to visit them. Are they looking at doing some expansion work or something, are they? What's happening here? They do seem to go from strength to strength. They've received yes. some money over the years in various grants and they keep expanding. And right. That's on a parcel of land that's owned by council or it might actually be crown land that we're mm. the managers for. So we've given them a lease. That was one of their areas of concern, one of the first concerns that they had when I first was re-elected back to council, they said they didn't have any certainty. Mm. Why would we spend money in this area? We've got no certainty. We haven't got a lease in place. Mm. They just had a casual arrangement with council. Right? Yeah. Okay. Right. So right. councillors changed that and councillors then basically put in place a lease. So they've now got a lease. So they've got certainty. So yep. that's good. Tick, step one. But they actually want to keep expanding their operations there. Right. And, well, look, I've been there a few the times. Numbers are growing, is that right? Or well, I think their, their numbers... Operations are growing. Well, probably all of the above. Their, right. their numbers are growing, their operations are growing, but even just the community involvement's growing. So mm. they run a garage sale there, for example. They yep. make a bit of money out of their garage sales, which helps fund their ongoing activities. Mm. But it just seems to be, every time I go there, they seem to be, there seems to be more activity there, more people there doing more things. Yeah, yeah that's great. So they, they do lots of things, but that's their challenge at the moment. Yep. They've got a certain footprint that council's given them as part of that lease. There's right. your footprint. Yep. Trying to fit what they've got into that footprint mm. is a challenge. Mm. They've talked before about moving to a completely new site, which we'd be happy with. Sure. If they want to find somewhere else they want to go to, we'd be happy, again, some sort of lease arrangement at, yep. a, at a very cheap rate. We'd be quite happy with that, I'd imagine. Yep. But the problem is if they do that, then they've got to build somewhere else and mm. that costs money, costs significant amounts of money, mm. which we don't have to give them. Yep. And the amount of money they generate from some of their activities is probably not going to fund some of those buildings. So mm. they're, they're looking for grants, but they're almost in a spot now they need to work out whether they stop any further development where they are and focus all their energies on going to a greenfield site and starting mm. again, or mm. do they say, no, we'll keep spending money where we are knowing that we're landlocked, we've mm. only got this certain parcel of land. Mm. But it's great to see community groups, community organisations out there doing some good for the community. And doing so well. And doing so well. And yeah. council's happy to work with those community groups, especially when you can see groups are doing a lot for themselves. They're not yes. just putting their hand out and asking for stuff yes. from council. Yeah. Oh, look, uh, Keswick Estate. We've spoken about Keswick Estate for a fair while. Um, it's going back pretty early in the year, I think, the last time we spoke about Keswick Estate. But I noticed the fact that there is land still available there in Keswick Estate. Um, so just in regards to the land there in Keswick, uh, where are we up to in regards to land sales? Not enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to sell more. Now, I want to ask the English teacher in you here. Oh, yes. Fire away. From a pronunciation point of view, I often say Keswick as a silent W. And I noticed you then said Keswick. Keswick. So yes. I don't know... If you know... That's my, uh, let, let's just say, that's having spent all these years teaching kids phonics, sounding out words and phrasings and combinations of letters, I'd suggest that's where that's probably come from. Right. Uh, so I'm going with the fact I don't see that the W is silent, so I see it as a Keswick. Okay. Um, but that's that's just me. I'll take your advice. <laughs> your, your superior uh, knowledge on English, I'll take your advice on that. Well, there's so, one thing I got you on there, mate. That's about it. Out of the thousands that I don't. <laughs> So Keswick. So at Keswick, we put up 52 lots for auction. We did over three auctions at the end of last year. We sold 13 lots okay. as a result of that process. 
Uh, at the moment, we've got an additional two under offer, mm-hmm. but that means we've got a fair few spare, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'd like to sell them. We'd yeah, like yeah. people in our community to Is there a them. reason why the, the blocks haven't sold? I think it's come down to timing to a certain extent. Mm. When we first started talking about developing these blocks and accelerating the development of these blocks, mm. The market in Dubbo was very hot. There were not enough blocks in, of land in Dubbo from the mm. private developers. The pricing was going through the roof. We yeah. said, fantastic, get in there. Let's get these blocks built, ready to go, get them out there and sold. Let's go to auction because you just couldn't pick mm. the amount that blocks were going for at the time because there was so mm. much variability in the market yeah. and so much volatility. So we did all that and we had a few delays in that process. And again, when it finally got to auction, there'd been some reserve bank interest rate mm, rises. That's right. And continue to rise. Yeah, it put a bit more pressure on the housing market. Some other developers had brought some blocks on. It mm. would have been nice to have had those blocks for sale. I reckon even three months earlier yes. might have been enough to have those yep. blocks all sold immediately. Yep. It didn't happen that way. That's what happens. We mm. move on. But now <laughs> we've got them so anyone can come along and make an offer. Or not make an offer. They can come along and sell. We've got prices on them. Mm. They can come to council and do that. Or we've got agents, some agents in Dubbo, some real estate agents, where we've put them out there for anyone of those agents to actually sell them as well. But they're just, they're not being sold quick enough. Mm. We'd Mm. like to get that money back. We've invested money, put money in the ground in terms of developing those blocks. We'd like to get that money back in the council. So prices start from $223,000. We've got block sizes ranging from 602 square metres to 941 square metres. There were four dual occupancy blocks that were available at the time. So they're good sized blocks, like particularly those 940 ones. They're they're still very good sized blocks, aren't they? Um, So the the dual occupancy blocks that we had there were pretty quick to be purchased, but we've still got one of those blocks for sale, so that'd be good for someone who wants to do a bit of development on that. Is that like for a duplex type scenario? Yeah, and duplex isn't the word we use anymore. Sorry, that's that's, that's my 80s lingo still holding around there. But it makes sense. Most people understand what you're talking about when you say duplex. So essentially, they're for sale. We know people out there still want to live in Dubbo. We know there's still a housing shortage out there, Mm. and we understand that pricing or the availability for people to borrow money, that's what's a bit of pressure mm. on at the moment. So sometimes mm. people have got to scale back what they build on there. But have a look at those blocks in Keswick. I think a good parcel of land, good area there, close to shops, mm. close to schools. Absolutely. A great spot there. So have yeah. a look. So a bit of a hard sell there. I'm going to see you on Saturday night. Maxie, we to, uh, to help celebrate a 100th birthday party. Oh, wasn't that wonderful? You went out to... Uh, Irene Smith's birthday for 100. Well, 100, yeah. How good is that? It is fantastic. And it was fantastic. The family had arranged for me to come along and wish Irene a 100th birthday. Right. They hadn't told Irene. I was a bit worried before I went that it's I might... It's a bit better than a letter from the king, I suggest. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit worried. Yeah, she had the bloke himself turn up here. I, he is. I, I might, I might you know, shock her too much when I turned up. But no, she's actually, very for 100 years of age, yes. I was very impressed. She was very switched on, uh, able to you know, have a good conversation, a uh, large group there, you know, a lot of loving people around her family, yeah. obviously there. And uh, imagine by the time you get to 100, you've got not just kids and grandkids and great grandkids. So there's a yeah, fairly absolutely. large family there. But yes. it's one of the things, you, you do lots of things mm. as mayor, and it's just the variety of things. So mm. I actually really enjoy that sort of thing. So Lovely, though, too. Anyone else out there turning 100? And I've, yeah, I've, that's probably, right, yeah. I've probably done two or three in the last year where someone's turned 100, so you go on yep. their birthday party. But that was really nice to go along. It was at the pub. So yes. there was Irene. Oh, there you go. That's a very pub. good Australian sort of way to celebrate 100th birthday. That's right. They didn't make a skull schooners or anything like that, but it was <laughs> good to see Irene. Bring out the yard glass and 
Have a crack, man. So there you go. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but yeah, so happy birthday to Irene, and yeah, thanks yeah. to the family for inviting me along, and I think they appreciate me coming along as well. Oh, well done. Well, Matt, it's time now for the so, Matt, we've had another little busy little session here today. We've got a lot to get through. Um, had got a lot to get through there. We got through it all. So what is your focus today? We've got the New South Wales Junior Rugby Championships on over the long weekend. How good's that? And on Monday, I'll go along and present the winners with their trophy. So yes. that'll be great. So I thought a bit different this week, a bit of sport. So let's do hey, the, Limerick, wrong with that. the Limerick around the New South Wales Junior Rugby Championships. $1.8 million they've injected into the economy. That's the by having this particular championships here under 14 here. Isn't that fantastic? <coughs> so, here's a limit. New South Wales junior champs make their way to Dubbo's fields where they'll play over a weekend long in June's frosty song, their rugby prowess on display. Oh, very nice. And it has been a little bit frosty too, may I say, as well. Well, Matt, thank you very much for your input this week. And, of course, we're ready to get back in for next week for Straight From The Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everyone, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.